Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said could be done and take your questions on how to do the same. Phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah, from a very, very chilly South Dakota. I don't want to talk about it so bad. So, Arch Arch wins, huh? Well, you know, it was very, very cold here. Like, it got down to minus 43 the other day, and nobody really wanted to go outside. I had to take my Husky out a couple of times, but even he didn't want to go further than round the block. And so, we were looking for something to do, and... We decided that we were going to go and play World of Warcraft, my wife and I. We haven't played in four, four-ish years. Okay. And I went to go install it, and I launched it, and I got a black screen. And I thought, I wonder what would just happen if I searched the Arch Package Manager for World of Warcraft. And lo and behold, there's a meta package in there for World of Warcraft for the different card types. Like if you got NVIDIA, Intel, or AMD, and you just install that, and then I relaunched it and win. So I like I like the fact that almost anything that I could want has been packaged in Arch. And we might touch on that in a little bit. We will touch on that in a little bit. I'm going to save mine for later. I have Arch win story too. First, let's get to some feedback. Our first email comes in from Julian. Julian writes in and says, hello, no one, Steve. I have a suggestion. The first Anthony from Ask Noah Show 371, even though I am the brother of the second Anthony. There's a project called Password Pusher. It's, you can learn more at pwpush.com. It allows you to enter and share passwords in an email by generating a unique link that you simply enter the password that you want into the text box. You're then presented with an amount of time or the amount of views you'd like before the link expires. Set these options to your liking and have the service generate a unique link for you to share. It's not perfect, but it does allow you to share passwords via email in a safer way. You can use the self-host option with Docker if that's your thing. This has been an individual tool for the IT company I work for. Invaluable tool for the IT company I work for. As for the second, Anthony, I also wanted to add a word of caution for those using Pi-hole and Windows machines. While it can be tempting to block every Microsoft domain, if you block the time server that is frequently queried, you can end up in a bad situation. If access is blocked time server, the Windows networking applet will state that you have no internet, even though you do. While this is mostly cosmetic, it can be used for Microsoft applications like Outlook that do an API call to the networking applet to see if there's internet. So you get it up in a situation where even though there's internet, some applications believe there's not internet. Thanks for all you do and keep up the good work, Julian. Our second email comes in from no name given. Hi guys, I love the show. I've got a part three-part question. My first question, is there a way to use a thin client to boot a Linux distro with a persistent like bare metal install and then automatically connect to a main storage over Samba or a better format? I've looked online, but everything I've found says to boot an ISO, install the OS on the thin client. I'd like to somehow run a diskless thin client, boot into Ubuntu or Debian with minimal storage and then have the main drive, quote unquote, the network automatically connect. So, Steve, it sounds to me like he's wanting to set up some sort of a pixie boot system that boots into a live operating or into a, a running operating system. You know, there was a time where I actually explored this. There was a, it escapes me now, but there was an Ubuntu based distro. I it was based on education, I believe, and it it would do this over the network and give you an XFCE desktop. And I used that for actually quite a while at my in laws' house because that simplified things, but. I haven't looked at that since 2006-ish. Hasn't been on my radar. What do you think? So the problem with that sort of setup is that you're you're unless you got everything else dialed in, if you get one problem, nothing all of a sudden works, and then it can be difficult to troubleshoot because all the computers you'd go to to work don't, you know, work. So oftentimes, even when they run thin clients, there'll be something on the thin client. 
right? Even if it's nothing more than a, a like a compact flashcard inside of a reader. But the idea is you have some sort of local storage, some sort of config, something to tell the thin client, here's who I am, what I am, and what I'm capable of doing. Now, it doesn't mean that you put any critical data on there. For sure you don't. You can keep all that over on the server. You can keep all the running applications. Heck, you can even keep the running environment on the server. But I might caution you away from using just the thin client and no onboard local storage. It's possible. So if you wanted to go that route, what I would say is install, you'd look into how to set up a Pixie server and then you would presume, I've not done it, but I presume you would install the operating system onto a disk and then set the Pixie server to boot off of that installed ISO or disk that you would serve up via a Pixie server. What I would actually do if I woke up in your shoes and I wanted to get into thin clients and I wanted to minimize any of the stuff that's on the thin client itself, I'd look at thin links, T H I N L I N X. Thin links is a Linux base for thin clients. And what it does is you flash it onto, in this case, an SD card and stick it in a pie if you want, or you can install it on an X86 computer. But it, on the first time you boot it up, it'll ask you what you want to connect to. And so available options are things like free RDP. Uh, and so you can go into a Windows box, or you can go into a Linux box, or you can go whatever it is you want on the other end, and then set this guy up to just be a an ability to remotely deliver that desktop. And it can be set up convincingly enough that other than the boot screen, you don't know you're not sitting at that computer. So I would check that out. Um, Steve, am I missing anything or is there anything that you would look at and say, man, if I was looking for a thin client, uh, I might, might consider, even if it's not something you've tried. Not really. Cause it, this is so far beyond my, uh, regular scope that I, I don't even know what I would do with a thin client, honestly. Mm. His next question is, I'm currently running a desk mini with an i5-8600 Proxmox Home Assistant and LXC. It runs great, but I don't have expansion for PCI devices. I like Google Coral. I have some cameras around the house, and Frigate looks like a great solution when paired with Coral or for face recognition of people and pets. Would an HP ProDesk uh, 11 PC work with a Coral installed and an i3-6100? Would it be enough power? Can Frigate make my PTZ camera follow the dog around when we're not home? My girlfriend likes to keep an eye on him since he's old. And Shinobi doesn't have PTZ control. Ah, ProDesk 1 Leader, I see. So um, let's start here. So as far as Wood and i3-6100, what do you think, Steve? If you were looking to virtualize or, I mean, in his case, he's also going to do some video processing, i3? Nah. No, I, well... Depends if it could handle a bunch of the offloading stuff. Like I'm not sure how much QuickSync might help you because it QuickSync can do the decoding and encoding uh, hardware-wise, but that's that's pretty weak. Um, I, I'd do it if I had to. Personally, I would. I'd, I'd go with an i5, and I think you're going to be able to find one at a reasonable price. You probably, if you watch carefully enough, could could find one at a similar price. I'd probably do that if I were you. I've only seen it once to where a computer doesn't have the horsepower to run cameras. And granted, it was 20 plus cameras that it was running on, but it really did struggle and it struggled bad. And there's nothing you can do about it when it struggles. You're just kind of hosed. But if it's a single camera, I think you'll be okay. To your second question or whatever, second question within the second, you ask about PTZ camera following the dog. So, I, I mean, there's motion detection built into cameras. So like the Axis has their own Axis motion detection. Some of the other software to include Frigate support things like motion recording, but it's not going to know it's a dog per se. If you wanted to go that route, again, not something I've done personally, but I'll have a link for you in the show notes, a YouTube video and a GitHub page to a project called Deep Lab Cut and Deep Lab Cut. Just say this with a straight face. It is a software for um, <clears throat> animal posing estimation. So the guy had a problem with his uh, dog uh, going doo-doo all over his yard, but he didn't know where the doo-doo lie. So he used this image recognition technology to pay attention to when his dog pops a squat and, and it marks that location on his yard. <laughs> and then he can go back and pick up all the poop. So that, I mean, 
projects like that exist. If you can detect poo, I imagine that you could say, here's the dog um, followed around or when he makes this particular pose, that means he's in pain or he's older. He might be of use to you. So I'll have links for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Final question. I have a couple of ESB boards that I would like to use as temperature sensors so I can place the sensor on the back of my servers to measure the temp being blown off the case. And he gives a couple of specifications. Side note, the Shelly wall plugs do not try to flash Tasmoda. You'll get a brick. If you search on Amazon, the Shelly plug has been replaced by the Shelly Plus plug. And there's enough of a difference that it won't work and it'll make it garbage. The GitHub for the firmware says it's able to flash it. The compatibility says it's okay, but myself and another editor have found that it doesn't. I filed a bug report. I switched to a cloud-free Sonoff plug. It does exactly what I want and it's a bit cheaper, albeit there's USPS shipping instead of Prime, but I'm okay with that. Anyways, sorry for the long message. Appreciate the great show. So I, anything to add to that, Steve? Just on the Shelly Plus plug, mm. they moved from ESP8266 to the ESP32 platform, and that has been causing people uh, some problems, not just with the Shelly, but just across the board when, when a manufacturer changes the chipset, um, that has been causing problems. I I take the the listener at his word that, this was causing bricks. I could absolutely see it. I imagine they'll get it worked out eventually. But on the flip side, the Shelly stuff does provide MQTT to stay completely local without using the cloud anyway. So mm. maybe you don't need to do this. I'm not sure. I'm not. Sure. I guess it depends on what your use case was. Our third email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, Good day, everyone. I came across a review of the Lychee Console 4A. Seems to show some interesting little portable Linux terminal. What's your thoughts on the Leechy Console 4A? Risk 5, laptops and tablets. So I, we, Steve and I both took a look at this thing. This is really cool. So first of all, it's just under 400 bucks. So it's not very expensive. The part that Steve and I didn't catch right away, but we did after we took a look at the link, this is a laptop. So it's a portable little Linux Risk 5 laptop. Screen the whole nine yards. Steve, this thing is pretty cool. Yeah, I I looked at that and thought, wow, that is, I was surprised. I'm surprised that for 400 bucks you're getting the little screen. No real word on what the battery life is or anything like that. But the uh, $400 model is uh, 16 gigs of RAM with 128 gigs of uh, eMMC, I believe. Um, and you could also get one for almost $500. It's got a terabyte SSD in it. So. There are some interesting options here for people that wanted to play with Risk Risk Five on the go. I would like I would love to see something like this. I really, really, really like my GPD Pocket, like more than I can really truly put into words and share with you. This has less of an appeal because it's not really a, if if now I haven't seen it in person, so that being the disclaimer. But judging by the amount of ports that are on there, things like RJ forty five. Uh, and, and the amount of ports that are on there, it makes me think that this thing is a little larger than a traditional pocketly portable computer, and yet it's not full laptop size, so it's kind of this weird in-between space. Secondly, they have a Type-C port on there, but it doesn't look like it's for charging because they have a second charging point as well. So maybe a couple of things I would like to see tweaked, but not a bad little machine, particularly if you want something to get started with RISC-V. Our fourth email comes in from Keith. Keith writes in and says, Hi, I just watched the latest show on YouTube. And for private information sharing, I recommend Private Bin. He links to Private Bin's GitHub page. I have it configured so that on, it only allows paste bins from certain IP addresses, which are assigned to connect via a VPN. The server stores the pasted encryption, and I have most of my pastes, pastes expires on reading. So the link is available for only one visit. Even though the paste bin URL is publicly available at pastebin.com, Outcast. It's really secure and it's my go-to for password sharing. Thanks, Keith. Steve, I got to tell you, does it surprise you at all that there are so many really awesome open source solutions out there for doing exactly this and neither you nor I were aware of them? Not at all. There's so much, so much out there. Yeah, but we'll this is like about... squarely in our wheelhouse. Like both you and I spend a, a disproportionate amount of our day with usernames and passwords. So we'll touch on this in the main segment, but you know you can go looking for a specific topic and end up somewhere completely different because of name collision, as in like the thing that you're searching for is so close to something else, and you get you get collision, or there's mm. just so much out there when you're looking for a specific type of thing, and so 
stuff doesn't bubble up. And I suppose this is the problem with the modern search engine, right? It, it's giving you a filtered result. And so maybe private bin was buried way down in the rankings. Yeah, well, all, all these people wouldn't be listening right now if that if they were that successful, right? So, I mean, in a way, we should kind of be thankful that we can be the thing that helps things bubble up to the surface. Our fifth email comes in from Ishan. Ishan says, hi, Noah and Steve. Recently, I've been trying various invoicing software in order to help my dad generate invoices for his business. I've landed on Frapbooks. And he links to frapbooks.com. It's a desktop-only FOSS app. I haven't tried Invoice Ninja, but decided against it because Frapbooks is way better in terms of customization, and the license is also AGBL v3. It, Frapbooks, uses a local SQL database, uh, SQLite database for storing all of the data. My question is, what's the best strategy to back up an SQLite database somewhere other than my dad's PC? I've read about various approaches and he links to Stack Exchange and wanted to know how you would go about doing this. I currently don't have an ass in my home, but I'd be okay with something like S3 storage. Also, I'd like to encrypt the data if possible, since it will contain my dad's client details, etc. Am I thinking too much? I'd like to stick with Frappe as this is a way that I can support my dad. And if anything goes wrong uh, by just changing the data directory in the database. So Steve, I'm break this apart into two questions and I have to give a little bit of background here. So, before either Steve or I looked into any of this at all, Steve goes, we read through the email and Steve goes, I mean, turn it off, copy it and turn it back on. And then we go to look at the documentation. Steve, how do you back up properly in SQL Lite database? So the official verbiage is to make sure that you have a lock on the database then okay. you take a copy with something like the CP or the copy command. Okay, so we and turn then it off. Release the lock. And then we copied it yeah. and we turn it back on. Oh, very nice. Okay. So yeah, it's easier than you think. And here's the I mean, SQLite is a fantastic little piece of technology. As far as backing it up, couple things. So the first thing I always tell people when we sit down, we start talking about backup, don't put your data on anything you don't understand. So if you don't understand how S3 works or you don't understand how uh, anything that we're about to recommend works, don't use it. It's a bad idea. It's a terrible idea because you won't be able to recover your data. And both Steve and I have stories, horror stories of people who thought they were doing a great job backing up their data only to found out they were doing something, but it wasn't backing up their data because they didn't have their data when they went looking for it. So last time, only do something with your data if you understand it. That said, to some people, the only way they can get their head wrapped around it is they buy three hard drives and every month or every whatever your backup strategy is, you make copies of it. And I've absolutely taken over offices as well as put systems like this in for people that don't understand. And is you can get your head wrapped around it. Is it cumbersome? Yes. Is it automated? No. Are there a million things that can go wrong with it? A hundred percent. But is it better than not having a backup strategy at all? Yes. Every time. And it's also, by the way, pretty cheap to go buy three hard drives. So if nothing else, do that. Once, if you're comfortable setting something up with automation, the most easy and straightforward way is to use something like Spider Oak. They have a Linux client, you download it, you point it at a directory, say back it up, make encryption, type in your password, it encrypts it locally so they don't have an option to it or they don't have access to it and then it sends it up and they charge you for the cloud storage. Now, Steve, there are more, I don't want to say more advanced, but there's, I'm going to say more simplistic but requires a little cowboy skills ways to get this done yeah i mean so first of all i want to back up to the the hard drive thing yeah one of the things that i would consider if i had full control would be i would put this on a zfs data set and turn the copies to like five because the this is not going to be a huge database mm. what that does is it gives zfs extra places to compare the checksums against and it will maintain against bit rot on your single copy. The reason that's important is because for the next step, if you copy something that has had bit rot attached to it, then you're going to have bit rot no matter how many times that you copy it or where it syncs to. Garbage in, garbage so, out. Exactly. That said, the cowboy approach that uh, you were referring to is likely doing something like tarring it up, GPG encrypting it in some sort of script and then pushing it to Google Drive or Proton Drive or one of those others. Where oh, yeah. It's... Sorry, oh, Proton. Yeah? No, well, well, I mean, so Spider-Oak is a go-to for open source backup stuff, but Proton has come into the space recently. They've been doing a bang-up job uh, 
easy prices, supports Linux natively, security on by default, Proton Drive would be a good choice for this. Yeah, um, it's it's one of those things that if you're already subscribing to the um, to the mail every year, at least for us, every year they just give us more on our anniversary that we signed up on, and mm-hmm. so we just keep getting an increase in our proton drive as a thank you for being a continued customer so this is not a plug i don't get any kind of like kickback for for saying it but it's we've got i don't know a gig or something worth of files up there and it works for us and uh it's worth talking about because a lot of people forget about it from the linux newswire newsroom this is the week in review with jt for the week of january 14th 2024 Here's the Linux and open source news. Linux Mint 21.3, codenamed Virginia, has been released. The Linux distro Solus, codenamed Resilience, has announced that version 4.5 is available for download. The Linux 4.14 kernel has reached end of life after six years of maintenance. The LibreBoot open source firmware now supports HP EliteBook 820 G2 laptops. And speaking of laptops, the security-oriented Cubes OS is now pre-installed on the Starbook Mark VI Linux laptops. In open source security news, the Mirai-based NoahBot botnet has deployed crypto miners on Linux servers. Debian has shipped critical security updates for Debian 11 and Debian 12. And as quantum computing continues to mature, there is a looming concern that the current forms of encryption could potentially be at risk. That concern has led to the ongoing development of quantum-safe encryption. VeriSign recently announced several new contributions to help the internet community prepare for the future with quantum computing. This includes an open source implementation of their Merkle tree ladder mode technique. In tandem with the open source release, VeriSign also published an internet draft specification on using MTL mode signatures with DNSSEC. In open source hardware news, MIT builds an open source hydrogen electric motorcycle that runs on a fuel cell. OpenWater is a wearable MRI and brain-computer interface device. It has been in development since its announcement in 2018. However, recently, OpenWater has chosen a different path. This month, they announced that they would make all of the technology open source, including hardware blueprints, source codes, patents, measurement data, etc. And lastly, in open source AI news, the AI search engine Perplexity has been getting a lot of buzz recently as an alternative to ChatGPT. And their CEO, who was formerly a researcher at OpenAI and DeepMind, has said that Perplexity will be putting more emphasis on open source LLMs. I, every once in a while, stumble across a project and I'm like, how has this not been in my life? And that was the case earlier today. Steve and I were having a conversation about, well, we'll get into what we're having a conversation about, but I, he brought to my attention this app called glances and i hadn't heard of glances i had heard of top steve described it as top on steroids boy that was that was the understatement i mean it is it's great if you want access to what's happening underneath your system and to see it delivered as kind of a terminal based dashboard this might be the way to go steve i've i've been using this for quite a long time so one of the things that's really nice about this that i discovered recently which is why we were talking about it is it has a web endpoint that, like you can enable the API so that things can come and scrape it, which I thought was fantastic. So you can run it as a service. And I guess you could say it's kind of akin to net data in that regard, where it runs as a service and something can come and scrape the, the data right off of it. But it does all kinds of stuff like it looks at your process list, your network, your disk I.O., your IRQs, the sensors you have that are running on your system. And Noah was commenting he had no idea he had so many sensors on his machine. <laughs> yeah, temperature sensors and external sensors and internal sensors. Yeah, it, it's really good. It gives a nice UI um, in the terminal and it has easy ways to export to Grafana and Influx. And I probably will start actually doing this to Influx. I haven't decided. One of the things that I struggled with when we were talking about this was, do I go and set up a bunch of Prometheus stuff, which is what I do for work, or do I do glances and point this at my Influx database already, which I already have gathering all kinds of other things anyways? What would you do, Noah? 
I really like the idea of being able to see all of the information that my computer has. My mind is immediately drawn back to a conversation I had with a, uh, with a gentleman from Southeast Linux Fest. And we were standing in the lobby and he was telling me one of his chief complaints about Linux is that all these other operating systems have these amazing hooks to gather information about the computer and then send it back to some sort of reporting system or be able to collect information. And Linux just doesn't have that. And from what I understand, for what you've been telling me, Glance has been around for a long, long time. I just hadn't heard about it until today. Yeah, I, I don't even know when I started using it a, like a long time ago. Um, it's been around, I don't know, let's let's take a look on the GitHub and see. I'm just going to go to their closed issue. Wow, they've, they've got almost 2,000 closed issues. I wonder how old the oldest issue is on just on GitHub, going back to 2011. Wow. So, yeah, just on GitHub alone, 13 years. I don't know if it existed. Uh, it may have existed before that because they are also on PyPy. So if you don't have it in your package manager for whatever reason, you can just install it directly from pip for python so you just do a pip install glances so this will give you the information that you need right on the terminal but there's actually a lot more that you can do with it so steve has been maintaining his home it infrastructure for what, what do you think about eight years steve oh longer than that but only in it's only been the last eight years where I've I've been customer facing, and so I've been trying to uh, dog food, I suppose, is the the term that we use. Okay, so you went through development, you went through R and D, you went through quality assurance. Now it's in production, and we got to support the thing. And you decided that your previous alert system, your uh, your automated monitoring and reporting system, it um, well, it was well. Explain your how did you how are you doing automated reporting and analysis and notifications before i wasn't i was lazy well Just how did you like, know that something you, went down uh my wife would tell me ah okay <laughs> so the system that was the wife that was doing the reporting and analysis first of all the reporting and analysis might get frustrated that the person was doing the reporting and analysis so you wanted a better system you wanted to build yourself a dashboard a single plane of glass to see how steve's life is going is it, am i following that about right yeah, I, I was starting to look down the path, like I kind of alluded to. I was thinking about, do I go and do the Grafana thing, which is a, an easy-ish lift for me because I deal with it a lot at work. How do I how do I go about making sure things are up and, and running properly? And as I was starting to search around, I, I was searching for dashboards because in my mind, that's what a dashboard does, right? But it turns out there's an entire category of software out there called dashboards that is essentially, I guess, how would you describe it, Noah? How would I describe? The the dashboards, like we were talking about it earlier. How I, would you describe that? I, I've always heard either single pane of glass or, or dashboard. You know, it's, the, I don't know. And here's the thing, that's, that's only getting to be more of a prolific term as you're logging into web control panels and everything else. But regardless of what you call it, it's, it's a collection of all the information in one place that presents it at a glance to you. That's what you were after. That's what I was after, but that's not where I ended up. Okay. Right? So the where I ended up is that this classification of dashboards that, I'm, that we're going to talk about here. I'll, I'll throw out some names for the people that are familiar. So there's things like Organizer, Flame, Homer, Heimdall, Dashi. All of these are dashboards but not for metrics they are dashboards that help you organize and maintain links to various things inside of your home lab or your organization or whatever so wait it's, it's like of, is it kind of like a start page that just has links to a bunch of things yeah yep that's that's basically what it is these are all start pages that you can customize so back in the day you used to you know i don't know lycos or all of um, AOL online and stuff like that, they would have a page that would load up by default, your homepage, and it would have a bunch of links or searches or whatever to try and keep you there. That's kind of what the idea here is. Okay. So what makes this any better? I mean, why wouldn't I just spin up a Hugo server and drop my static links on there? What makes this better? Well, you could do that. Um, I personally 
wouldn't do that. So one of the ones that I looked at is called Flame, and Flame is essentially that. So okay. Flame, the the idea behind this is it's a bare bones, minimalistic, slightly graphical way of having your links so that you don't just have a URL. You can have like a grid and maybe some nice icons and you can theme it a little bit, but that's about the end of it. So Flame is very, very basic. It's a, it's, it really is a glorified bookmark keeper, which is exactly what it was meant to do. But for me, that wasn't really what I was looking for exactly. Because remember, I got here by thinking I was going to make like a Grafana dashboard or like an Influx dashboard or something with a bunch of metrics on it. That's yes. what, where my mind was. So I came across Flame, looked at it, installed it, thought, this is good, but not for me. Um, and so I kind of went down the rabbit hole of, well, this is an interesting subgenre that I didn't even know existed before. And so I, I kind of started looking. I installed six different ones and I put the exact same information in them, like the same 15 servers or services that I, I was looking at and tried to arrange it to get a feel for how they looked and how they presented the data. So yeah, that's, that was my, where I started my journey. And where did your journey wind up? What did you land on? So I'll tell you a little bit about um, Organizer. This was the one that I thought that I would really like. Okay. So it's really hard to describe with words, but if you think about along the left-hand side of your your browser, they essentially have a bunch of icons and the icons slide out if you hover over them and then you can click on them to go to your different services. What Organizer's kind of claim to fame was is I'll put everything in an iframe for you so to the right of that that bar that's on the left-hand side of your browser so that you don't have to open new windows or new tabs or whatever. You can stay inside of the organizer um, experience and just view your pages inside of a page. This was, it, this was really appealing to me. I thought this would sound fantastic. This is exactly what I was looking for. And it didn't work for about 97% of the things that I tried because... Uh, so running in Firefox, and I, I assume it's the same way in other browsers, uh, what's happening is those services are not allowing themselves to be put in an iframe because of cores, which is a, a cross-site scripting uh, prevention thing mm -hmm. so that your origin stays the same. Like, though basically so that you can't get man in the middle. So a lot of services these days have that turned off. And what... what uh, ultimately drew, drove me away from organizer was the fact that there is a home page like a main page for it they do call it your home page and you can put nice widgets on there but a lot of it is geared at like media acquisition so you can put a calendar app on there and it tells you when your favorite shows are going to be playing mm -hmm. um you know it can hook into jellyfin and other things and show you all of that kind of wonderful stuff but that wasn't what I was looking for. So um, I'm not going to go into detail of each of the other ones, but Homar with an A and mm -hmm. Homer with an E, they're both very similar in terms of they also have that media approach, and that wasn't really what I was looking for. So I ended up falling on Dashi. Okay. And Dashi was really where I thought... Uh, what I was looking for was ultimately I wanted to have a good looking page that had customizable icons that was um, easy at a glance to understand what was happening in my services. Mm -hmm. So if your services have an HTTP endpoint or HTTPS, whatever, that it can ping, it will actually tell you if the service is up or not based on the response. Now it's it's a dumb response, right? If you happened to have a blank page return. So for example, I had an error with cockpit at one point and when you hit the page, you'd get a blank page, but um, it was returning a 200 error. Like there was an error on the server somewhere and it wasn't, it would just return a blank page, but it would return a valid blank page. And so Dashy thought it was up. That seems so helpful. it's, well, I mean, it's not meant to replace your monitoring. It's meant to be at a glance. Like it gives you a nice 
uh, you can change the way that it looks. So I'm just kind of looking at mine. I have mine vertically stacked um, in columns. So like virtualization, I have web services, I've got my OpenShift stuff. And from that, you put the little icons and beside there, there's a green, or orange or a red dot that indicates whether they're seem to be functioning. And that's all that I really wanted because if my wife says Confluence isn't working and I look in here and see the green dot of, okay, something else is, is the problem. So that's where I, I landed. And if this sort of thing interests you, I would recommend going to take a poke at Dashi. So when all the dust settled, are you happy with it? Does it get you, what can you see? What, what are you able to see off of your new dashboard? I like it quite a bit. Well, there's a couple of things that that really clinched it for me. So one is you can edit the layout in the in the UI itself, but also in the YAML. And so between the various tools that I had found, some let you only do it in YAML, some only let you do it in, in the UI. And this one lets you do it in both and just writes itself back to the YAML that you are controlling. And so I really like that. And ultimately... For the up-down status of what I was looking for, as well as keeping track of all of the things that I have, sure, I have. I, I know that, for example, I run PyHole, but sometimes I don't remember whether I put it on that domain or this domain, and you know that ends up leading to some problems. So it's nice to have a, basically a bookmark thing that I can point to, for, for example, for my wife. I, she can just go to Dashi and click on the things because... One of the things that I did as part of this is I rolled everything under a specific domain and applied a wildcard cert. So a bunch of the URLs that she had in her browser were no longer working. Huh. So, you know, this this solves that problem because I shifted from a dot local domain, which I can't apply an SSL cert to, to a domain that I own. And because that happened, you know, old bookmarks broke. Fascinating. So this is one of the first things that we've talked about on Ask Noah that I'm really anxious to get going for myself, in part because I feel like everybody wants that kind of single place to just get an idea of, is it up and is it working? And the ability to tie into Glance and be able to go suck some of that information out, can you display the information or just show that it's online, not online? No, it actually graphs it for you. It does, so okay. you, you have, oh yeah, there's a widget for it and... Um, you can graph all kinds of stuff that comes. Now you can't graph everything. Uh, the widget has to support it, but you, it does network RAM, CPU. It does um, idle time. It, it does a ton of stuff, including if you want to know the time serve the time zone of the server for some reason. Like it does, it does all that kind of stuff. Very cool. If you want to learn more, write in at live at asknoahshow.com and ask specific questions. We'll drill into dashboards a little bit more. So, Steve, you also had an experience this week regarding proprietary garbage licensing, and they treated you like a special boy because you went the cool kid route with AMD. So I have to run VMware for work-related purposes. I need to be able to mock a client environment as closely as possible. And with that, I don't need to have a giant license and the license that I have was amended some time ago to make room for the fact that the Epic CPUs have just a boatload of cores, especially like the most recent generation has a CPU that's got 96 cores plus the hyper threading or whatever AMD calls their equivalent. Um, and that caused me some frustration. So I recently upgraded a server to a dual Epic CPU box and I got VMware installed and it immediately threw an error on the licensing saying, hey, you've got too many cores per socket. I thought, oh, well, I suppose what I'll do is I'll pull this down. I ended up putting RHEL on it, installed KVM, then put AMD, I put the VMware inside of KVM. So I'm doing nested virtualization. And I ended up splitting up the CPU so that I told it I had three sockets and each socket had 15 cores in it. And that for some reason was okay. But having the original two sockets with their hyper threading was not okay. Oh. Um, and yeah, it, it led to a whole host of troubleshooting down the way that turns out AMD servers are not as well battle tested. 
Well, that's unfortunate. So the the takeaways here, though, to me anyway, as you as you kind of walk through this, first of all, how'd you get around it? How'd you work around it? Well, so like I said, the the first thing that I did was I I installed VMware inside of KVM. So I'm doing nested virtualization, and then I lied to VMware. I changed the layout of the CPU architecture so that it only had 15 cores, but I told it I had three sockets instead of two. And so, yeah, basically I'm lying to VMware in order to be able to just turn turn this on and use the license that I legitimately have. Here's what it sounds like to me. It sounds to me like they're pushing their potential customers away. You might not be their potential customer, right? Like you're probably not going to drop a gajillion dollars on the latest VMware license, but Consider this, you are the guy that is going to be doing support and or software implementation for the people who would write that check. So I don't really understand what it gains them by keeping you out. If you use it to its full advantage, even if you're using it on a bajillion cores, it's you're, they're not. there's no lost opportunity cost because they weren't making any money off of you anyway. Conversely, though, you have to use open source software to kind of shim it. How long before the shim just becomes the thing? And you're like, well, listen, here's the deal. And I mean, I get you're you're in less of a position to do this than I am. But at what point do you look at something and go, here's the here's the gargantuan check that VMware wants you to write. Here's the exact same thing that you could do, or maybe not the exact same thing, but you can accomplish the same things using this tool over here. At some point, the open source tool is going to get there. And in fact, you would say that they're making a lot of headway as it relates to cockpit for controlling and managing virtualization. Yeah, as part of this exercise, I thought I haven't looked at cockpit since RHEL 7. So long time. I, I've, you know, I poked at it here and there, but I never really used it in anger. I, I turned it on on both of the VM servers that I have. And I was really impressed with how far it's come. You can't do absolutely everything with it, but for the day-to-day -day tasks and particularly for the networking tasks, it made my life so much easier. They have just a one button like enable bridge and that did a bunch of magic immediately and and everything just worked. And I was very surprised because I've, I'm used to the old days of like, I've been configuring bridges by hand since RHEL 4 a very, very long time. So I was very surprised at how quickly it just ripped through all of that. I really like the direction that cockpit is going and they're, they're phasing it to be the replacement for vert manager. So happy to see that they're, they're getting there. My takeaways from your experience, Steve. So the proprietary guys are pushing you the opposite direction and the open source guys are becoming more welcoming. It's easier to get you on board. Yeah, I'd say that. I probably, my next step would be, honestly, if VMware gives me much more problem, I probably will just install OpenStack and say, you know what, this is as close as I can get given the constraints that I have. You know, I had a similar experience, not from the standpoint of VMware, but of, of proprietary stuff, just kind of dropping the ball. So there's this place I provide, we provide support to, and they use Macs for everything. So everybody gets a MacBook. And Macs are, you know, they're, they're well known for their ease of wide deployment and great central management solutions. But at a certain point, Apple will just stop shipping the latest version of Mac OS. Now, to a degree, we all get it, right? You can only run something so long before the newest, you need a newer piece of hardware to be able to run the thing. Great. So it'll surprise nobody listening that I immediately seize the opportunity to start bringing them to the good loving nature of Linux. And I started repurposing these old MacBooks with Linux and specifically elementary OS where possible. And here's why. So elementary OS is one of the best OEM stock experiences. Like you want somebody to hold your hand and walk you through using an operating system. And you want to forget that Linux is on the other on underneath and you just want to use the computer. Elementary OS checks every one of those boxes. The polish on elementary OS is fantastic. And I very much remember early days when elementary OS first came out and they were bragging about things like rounded corners. And in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, but how many people, man, you really start to dig in. The more you use it, the more you start to notice all of the polish. And so on 
like the 2015 MacBooks, it feels like a stock OEM experience. And I don't mean stock as in like it feels like native macOS. If you're a daily macOS user, you're not going to fool anybody, but that's not what it's meant for. It rips off the Mac aesthetic and it fixes most of the, because we're on Mac, it, it fixes that kind of stuff. And yet it implements a similar workflow as to how you would do things on a Mac. And so if you're used to double clicking on the window and it maximizes and you're used to all of that stuff, they were able to rec recognize and they were able to implement and it's done well and it holds the user's hand all the way through. So the first time they're dropped into the computer, it's asking them questions. Hey, do you want to back up your stuff? Hey, do you want me to automatically empty the trash and temporary files? You know how many machines that I've run into to where something doesn't boot and it turns up because some partition is full or something didn't get emptied or something didn't get deleted. They have a thing. And so you can say, no, I don't want to do that. I'll manage it all myself. You just uncheck the box. It's fine. And you get to the end, every little thing down to some of the obnoxious things like little icons in the file manager are all very reminiscent of Mac OS. You start to find or try to find the seams, which I try to do. I was like, oh, this is a really nice doc. I wonder what they're using. Is it, and I'm trying to click on it and I can't figure it out. And I'm like, what, what is a cocky doc? Is it docky? So I don't understand why this is. And you know where you configure it, you configure it in the settings, which conveniently is the place, the last place, the little welcome in wizard leaves the user is in the settings, the system settings, which is where you change literally everything about the system in the system settings. See how they did that? And it just, I don't know, it, may, it makes an experience really, really inviting. And they take time to do stuff that no other Linux distro, I shouldn't say no other, but many other Linux distros don't do. Now, I'm going to take my nerd half off for just a second. I'll put it back on in a moment. But this welcome screen that takes me through all of the stuff and leaves me and says, here's how to configure your system, that's helpful to me as a user. Steve was just telling me about how lost he felt the first time he booted up Grafino S and there was nothing there to tell him what to do next. They replace all of the scrolling text and all of the status messages with progress bars. So the entire screen just is a bar going from left to right when it's doing updates and stuff like that instead of scrolling text. Now again, putting my nerd hat back on, I want to see that text. I want to see what's happening under the hood. And oh, by the way, when there's an error, I want to see that too so I can figure out how to fix it. But most people get confused and bogged down and maybe they even think something's wrong. Putting a progress bar to left to right is a great way to communicate. Something's happening, just don't touch it for a minute. And that works every time. And so again, is it going to fool somebody who lives, eats, and breathes macOS? No. But for the, I just need to click on Chrome, and Chrome's on my dock there, and it opens up. Those people, they're, they're set. They're set. And it works really great. And so on the 2015 MacBooks, works fine. Now comes the rub. And the rub is, I had installs of various different, various different Ubuntu-based distros to include elementary OS. They worked at the time that I installed them on the computer. When I went back to look at what happened as to why Wi-Fi was no longer working, apparently the Broadcom chipsets are only supported for a certain amount of time. And if you go to the page talking about this particular Broadcom chip, it says it's no longer supported by the kernel. Now, there is a proprietary driver that you can install. While there's an open source driver that only works on 2.4 gigahertz and it drops the connection, there's a proprietary driver that you can install, but by doing so it requires you to manually pull down the kernel headers, which means every time the user goes to update, it's going to break. Now, this is about where I would say, so how terrible is it that Apple only pushes updates off to their computers for a little bit and then they go and die by the wayside? But there is a savior in all of this and it is Arch. Steve, I plugged the Arch drive in and it decided, the Endeavor OS to be specific, it did not hold my hand nearly to the extent that elementary OS did. It definitely didn't look anything like Mac OS, but you know what it did? It booted. And you know what it had? Wi-Fi. And you know what? All of the hardware worked. It just worked. So just like with my dad's little stupid mixer thing that, that wouldn't connect through, and just like your game today or well this week i had the same experience i plugged arch in and arch just made it work it worked on the 2013 worked on the 2015 uh it worked on uh the little 11 inch air like all of those things i was able to bring life back into them. apple didn't want life to be in there other distros have either given up or are not willing to take on the legal liability that it takes to get the necessary code and it didn't work arch worked so i'm thankful about that yeah, thanks to the Arch guys. I'm years, years happy with all of the, you know, I hear people say don't run rolling, but honestly, if my wife has yet to break it, 
that is a thing in and of itself because she's always joked she should go work as a QA tester because she finds <sighs> all the bugs. You know, here's the deal. I think we're eventually going to arrive at a place to where the underside, like the thing that talks to the hardware, if you think about like a tank, right? You've got the turret on the top and you've got the uh, tracks at the bottom. You could think of Linux and the kernel almost like the tank. And eventually you get to something like Arch, something that's rolling, something that's bleeding edge, something that's right there. And all of the little hooks into the system work just fine. And then on top, you have a stable base by way of immutable operating systems and containers. And so it serves up flat packs and they all exist inside of their own little thing and have their all little special snake, you know, snowflake libraries and all of the things to present those applications. And they all run on one system. I think that's the direction we're, we're skating to as a technical society. It's just being obfuscated in various levels, but you look at the steam deck, that's largely what they did. Minus the flat pack thing. Yeah, I mean they have flat packs there. Um it's flat pack support. So mm. yeah, I'm I'm a big happy fan of the Steam Deck as well. GNOME 46 is set to introduce headless remote desktop logins via GNOME Display Manager. So the GNOME project has been working hard on the upcoming GNOME 46 release and one of the game changers is this ability to do headless remote login via GDM. Now, one of the things that I think is particularly cool is it's using Pipewire under the hood to make this happen. And so they say, quote, the alpha release of the GNOME remote desktop is now available for public testing as part of the upcoming GNOME 46 alpha milestone based on free RDP 3.1 and implementing headless remote login via GDM RDP only. In other words, this will enable a graphic remote login to your GNOME machine when no one is logged in. This has been a feature missing from Linux. Not really missing from Linux, because if you knew what you're doing, back from the time that we had X, I mean, they were like, well, it's an X11 server. I can afford it over SSH. Why wouldn't you just do that? So we've been able to do that. But as we make the transition to Wayland, we need newer, better ways to do this. And having things like Pipewire that connect underneath the hood give that ability to have this seamless experience. And GNOME has made some real... So one of the last things I noticed about GNOME the last time I used it was inside of the settings manager, they have like a allow remote logins via SSH in the graphical settings. So as a normal user, like I just want to permit somebody to log in remotely, I have just a checkbox and I can do that. And it presumably opens the firewall ports and and, and, and enables SSH. So we have like we've been making steps, but the real ability to remote into your computer or to control it or to, I suppose, do remote assistance, although that's really more ideal if both users can be logged in at the same time, I think is game changer. Um, Steve, do you ever remote into your desktop? Only SSH, honestly. I do support other people remotely, so mm. I definitely do that, Th though this probably is not going to be the best experience for over the internet. No. Well, I don't know. RDP is pretty performant, so it, we'll see. We'll see when it comes out. Um, but uh, like I say, I, this is, I think this has been one of Linux's greatest opportunities for growth, and so the ability to get super easy remote access, oh, this is going to be fantastic. Super excited. Music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. The show is live every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. Check out the show notes, podcast.AskNoahShow.com. That's where you find all the articles and references that we use to create the show. If you want to get the latest, follow us on X. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at AskNoahShow. We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com.